Welcome to the Jungus Games podcast, where in today's episode, you'll be hearing audio from a recent impressions vlog. In that video, I discussed some updated impressions for Anno 1800 and the castles of Tuscany, and then I talked about some new impressions for New York Zoo, Smartphone Inc., as well as Rise of Queensdale. Now, Rise of Queensdale was a uh, legacy-style campaign game, and I'll start that one off not spoiling anything and then probably spoil some things near the end, and that's one of the reasons why this overall video was not filmed in alphabetical order. Now, it's worth noting there are timestamps in the description of this podcast to each of these segments if you don't want to listen to the whole thing. And I would also like to point out that the only reason this podcast is being made is because of the direct support that's coming in through the Patreon campaign for the channel. Now, if you'd like to learn more about that, then you can go to patreon.com slash Games. And if you enjoy listening to these vlogs in podcast form, then I do hope you would consider directly supporting the channel. The final thing I'd like to ask is that if you have any questions or comments about anything I say today, that you leave those as comments on the video page for the vlog, and you can find a link to that in the description of this podcast. Uh, now let's go ahead and start talking about games, and the first one is Anno 1800 again. Uh, now, I haven't really done uh, revisions like this much in the past, but I'm actually uh, doing two of those in this video. Um, I talked about Anno 1800 a lot in the previous Impressions vlog. I think I talked about it for over 20 minutes, and since then, I've actually played it a couple more times, and in my overall playgroup, it's been played many more times, and I wanted to kind of revisit some of the things that I left with uh, with that last impression segment. Now, I'm not going to go into the specifics of the game. I'm just going to talk about um, the new stuff. So feel free to watch that segment uh, to get an idea of what's going on. But I'd like to open this up by saying uh, that this is very likely slash potentially the best game that I've played this year. Um, I think that I really overly focused on some of my worries for the game in the last impression segment and didn't highlight the joy that this game has brought uh, to me and to many people in my gaming group. Um, the fact that you can teach Anno 1800 in like 20 or 25 minutes and then get right into the game is a huge, or I guess not a huge, is a very low barrier to entry compared to other games of this weight. And um, I want to start off by saying, uh, from a play length perspective, uh, this game is not overly long, especially once you get used to it. I maybe exaggerated the amount of time that it could potentially take to play, uh, and I was kind of talking about hypotheticals, but in our experience, um, the first three-player game took, I believe, uh, that one was like three hours, but then the first four-player game that I played with uh, three people being experienced only took like two and a half hours. And I can say that um, just a couple nights ago, I played a four-player game where everybody knew the game and it took exactly two hours. Um, I've seen three-player games of this go at like an hour and 20 minutes, which means this is not overly long, in my opinion. I think, actually, the uh, overall amount of time that it takes to play is uh, spot on. Uh, I will also say that my winning streak is over. I have officially lost this game. Uh, the last game I played, I came, uh, well, what was it? I think I came in third place. Yeah, third. Uh, but it was a pretty competitive third. Uh, now, I'm not going to talk about the details of my scores and whatnot, but I do want to say that the worries that I had in the last segment about the overall balance uh, and the play length, which I've already talked about, um, I think they're, they're going away. Um, you know, this game has created far more discussions in my gaming group than any game that I can really remember for years now. Um, it seems like every time this is played, there is a huge debrief in our uh, chat channel and people talking about this and talking about that. Uh, after every single game, we end up talking about it for like <laughs> 30 to 40 minutes, uh, talking about what we could have done here or what strange thing happened in this particular play. Uh, and the last time I played it, I tried to never explore the new world. And I feel like I was competitive. I did come in third place, but I feel like if things had gone slightly differently, 
differently and if I had played a little bit more aggressively, then um, I could have actually won that game without going to the New World at all, which is surprising considering there was a mission card that gave points for having New World-based industries. So um, realistically, those five mission cards that you put out that um, change the some of the end game scoring conditions and some of the actions really do change the feel of one game to the next. Uh, I played one game where we never got to the final level of workers. Uh, the teal investor workers uh, unlock the ability to build the best types of industry, and we played a full game. And we never saw a single piece of those industries because of the way the game state emerged. No one actually got to that point, whereas all of the other games that has happened. So I am really loving the way this game is so different from one play to the next. I love how easy it is to teach. And honestly, it seems like whenever we have game nights these days, it's like, should we learn something new or should we just play Anno 1800 again? <laughs> it seems like that uh, Anno 1800 oftentimes actually gets picked. And there's this funny thing happening where when anyone notices that a game of Anno 1800 is happening and they're not in it, there's like a pang of jealousy. And there's like, I see a chat pop, uh, pop up and someone's like, oh, you're playing Anno 1800. How is this game going on? Like everybody's so interested in knowing what this specific play is going to be like and what the next one's going to be like, that, you know, I think my worries are gone, essentially. Um, that there's, you know, some tiny little uh, niggly things that I feel like maybe this should have been slightly different or that should be slightly different, but I'm not going to be house ruling anything. I'm just going to play with it the, uh, the way the rules are stated because we are enjoying it so much. Uh, I just got a uh, physical copy of it. I ordered it like four weeks ago after I think my first play, and I'm super excited to have a physical copy of this game because I just really like it that much. I want to own a copy of this one because I could see playing this one a lot in the future. So the jury is still out about what the best game of 2020 will be for me, but I can tell you that this is a significant contender and a game to knock this off the one spot is going to have to be a really good game indeed. Uh, so yeah, I just wanted to come back to this and I guess just talk lovingly about Anno 1800 a decent bit because I feel like I was uh, overly critical in the last segment. Uh, so let's now move on to the next revised segment that I want to do. And this one is about the Castles of Tuscany. Um, I talked about this one, I believe, a couple of impressions vlogs ago. and uh, Or maybe it was one. I didn't do my research. But uh, I will say that I have now played the Castles of Tuscany four times. And unfortunately, this is kind of the opposite of the uh, other revisit thing I did. Um, my impression of the Castles of Tuscany has been uh, lower over time. Uh, the first time I played it, I was uh, really impressed, if I'm being honest. Like, um, the rules were so streamlined, the gameplay was so streamlined, uh, the, the turns were so quick, uh, we were just, you know, drawing cards, you're drawing a tile, or you're playing cards to put a tile down. Um, I really liked that overall vibe. But I remember in that first play of it, it was four players, and I was pretty high on it. And the other people around the table, especially a couple of those people, were pretty meh on it. They're like, I'd just rather play Castles of Burgundy. And I remember feeling like, well, you know, Castles of Burgundy is for a different mindset, for a different evening. Um, you play Castles of Tuscany when you want to play something more streamlined and uh, quicker. Um, that's just, you know, two different settings. And um, after that, I've now played the game three more times. And the last time I played the Castles of Tuscany, I couldn't help but have this feeling in the back of my head like, I would just rather be playing the Castles of Burgundy. <laughs> uh, I think um, that original impression of some of my friends is starting to work its way into my brain. And I do still think that this, that Tuscany is um, a game for a different mindset, for a different gaming group, um, uh, perhaps, or at least a different gaming uh, uh, setting. Uh, obviously, it's very quick uh, to teach and very quick to play versus um, more complexity that happens in the Castles of Burgundy. But I'm starting to find after four games that it's feeling pretty samey. Um, there are the different upgrades that you can take, but 
there's not a lot in the game that really pushes you towards one upgrade style or the other. Um, you could just always go heavy on cards, for instance, and still probably do well. Um, I don't think they're imbalanced. I've seen people go heavy on each of the upgrades and do well, so that's certainly a good thing to see. But I wish there was something in the game that that push that a little bit more. Um, now, if you have a bunch of orange cards in your hand and you can take an orange tile, then maybe you take the orange upgrade. There's little things like that, but uh, for the most part, I found myself being like, well, I've never really gotten a marble upgrade before in games, so I'll try that one out. And, you know, after playing four games of it, I'm starting to be less interested in that kind of uh, experimentation, if that makes sense. So I, I can see myself playing the Castles of Tuscany again. I don't dislike it, um, but I'm starting to feel like I'm not going to be pushing for it anymore. Like, if somebody else wants to play it, then I will certainly consider it. But um, maybe it's just my personal taste is shifting to something slightly meatier at this point, um, you know, in this month or this week or whatever. But that was uh, my feeling of it. Um, I do want to mention um, two things. Uh, actually, just one other thing, really about the Castles of Tuscany is that that's that I'm starting to see some weird end game states um, in several of the games now. Um, once the game is very close to being over, like maybe four rounds away from being done, um, I've seen several situations where one or more players have essentially run out of things to do. Um, there are no tiles in the market that they can legally play because they played all of those out. They might have other tiles that they'd like to play, but those aren't on the market. So those people find themselves just drawing cards or maybe drawing a tile, but then that might reveal a better tile for somebody else and that tile they just took is illegal to place. So they'll just draw cards instead because at that point, most people can be drawing three cards for an action and every three cards is a, a point. So there's been this kind of deflating end game in several of the uh, plays that I've had where some of the people spend their last couple turns just drawing cards that they don't need to get one point per turn, whereas somebody else is able to get the tiles that are out there on the market that match up better for them. And it's entirely possible that the people with that um, deflating Endgame should have played better and maybe played differently to not find themselves in that situation, but it has happened repeatedly in essentially all of the games that I played. Um, so that is certainly something that um, has been working its way up in my brain. Uh, like, it's not great. It's it's not like that for every single person, but it's not a great vibe. And there's been uh, several times where somebody around the table is like, uh, can anybody see something good for me to do? And everybody agrees that there really isn't anything good for them to do. And uh, that's a bit of a bummer. So um, the Castles of Tuscany is still fine overall. My impression of it has just uh, downgraded a little bit uh, overall. And I do see myself playing this one more, but I wanted to revisit these impressions because uh, obviously I have more data after playing the game some more. All right, let's now move into the third game I'm talking about today. And for the first time in this video, uh, this is a new game I'm covering. Uh, now, speaking of new, this is the New York Zoo. And uh, this is a new polyomino style uh, puzzly game from Uwe Rosenberg. Um, now, if you're not familiar with these terms and this designer, uh, Uwe Rosenberg has designed lots of heavy games like Agricola, Caverna, and A Feast for Odin. But he's also designed a, uh, a large amount of these polyomino style games in the last five or so years. Um, now, polyominoes are um, puzzle pieces that are made up of little blocks. They might look kind of like Tetris pieces, um, but it's polyomino because it could be a variety of different uh, uh, numbers of spaces instead of four like in Tetris. Uh, now, in this game, you are building out a zoo, and on top of the puzzle nature of trying to put these pieces together so that they fit and fill in your area, you are also trying to manage and breed your animal population. Um, now, in essentially all polyomino games from the, uh, from the ones that I can think of, you are trying to fill in your area, and this one is no different. Um, the game ends as soon as any one player has filled in every single spot in their zoo in front of them, and then that person is the winner. Now, 
when it's your turn, you move this elephant token around a central board, uh, and the number of spaces you can move is dependent on the player count, and then you will either take a new uh, enclosure piece and put it down onto your board that has to fit, or you might uh, take some new animals that you can then put into your enclosures or into some standby houses. Now, the reason you are breeding these, or getting these animals is because at certain points around the track, uh, when the elephant token crosses over a breeding spot, then everyone who has at least two of that type of animal in one of their enclosures will breed a new animal. So these animals make new animals in the enclosure, and the reason you want that is because as soon as any one enclosure tile is completely full of one type of animal, you will essentially clear out all of those animals, and then you could take an attraction, which could be like a roller coaster or a hot dog stand or something like that, and you piece that in somewhere on your board. So effectively, gaining and breeding animals gives you more opportunities to take more pieces that you can use to fill out your board. And importantly, the enclosures are all sorts of wacky different shapes, but those attractions are very simple uh, shapes, so they're great at filling in the different gaps and stuff that you have in front of you. Now, a funny thing about New York Zoo is that mechanically it plays a little bit different uh, based off of the player count, a little more than um, the average differences in player count. Uh, when you're playing this game with uh, two or three players, yeah, pretty sure, two or three players, uh, when you breed, there is an extra bonus breed that happens. So essentially, if the elephant crosses over the kangaroo breeding line, then everyone can breed kangaroos. But if it's a two or three player game, then in addition to that, you can also breed another animal of your choice, um, I believe you have to breed at least one kangaroo to make that happen. I can't remember the details of that rule, but effectively, if it's a two or three player game, you get more flexibility with another breed that you can do. So kangaroos breed and you can breed a kangaroo and maybe a penguin or maybe a meerkat. Now, if you're playing a four or five player game of this, then there is no bonus breed. If the token crosses over the kangaroo line, then only kangaroos are gonna breed in your area. Now, I've played New York Zoo twice. I played it at two players and at five players. So that means nothing in the middle, the, the smallest and the largest player count. And I'll start this off by saying that I've actually quite enjoyed playing the game, um, with an asterisk being that some other people haven't, but I'll talk about that soon. Uh, but I do want to specifically say that I started, uh, the first play of this was uh, in person, and I played it with uh, my wife, Jessica, and I was not blown away by the um, specific bonus breed. Um, it felt a little bit too loose to me. Like, I enjoyed the play. It was fun. Uh, I liked managing all the different animals, but it seemed like in a two- or three-player game, specifically that two-player game I played, uh, it made a lot of sense to try and get pairs of essentially all of the animals so that every time any breeding happened, you would get that bonus breed for the type of animal that you specifically needed. And it was kind of easy to do the things that you wanted to do. And I remember uh, leaving that first play uh, having enjoyed it, but also feeling like I really wanted to try the game at four or five players so that there was no bonus breed. Uh, fortunately for me, like two days later, I was able to play a five-player game of this. I uh, scanned it into uh, and made a mod in Tabletop Simulator and played this with some friends. Um, now, the five-player game was also quite enjoyable. Uh, from my perspective, I quite enjoyed it. And I really preferred the game without that bonus breed. It seemed like the the specifics of what you're trying to do was much more focused. Uh, in that second play, I essentially only bred, uh, what was it, kangaroos and flamingos. I think I had one batch of penguins, but that was, you know, a one and done type thing. I just focused on kangaroos and flamingos, whereas in that two-player game, I was breeding all five different types of animals because of that bonus breed. Well, without the bonus breeding action, it seemed like it made sense to focus more on certain things, and I won pretty handily in that game. Actually, I've won both of the games that I played, so I guess that is um, something to keep in mind. Now, um, talking about the various impressions that have been had amongst other people, uh, my wife Jessica enjoyed our one two-player game, but um, she felt like 
she wasn't sure how much more she's interested to see in the game. Like it felt like a bit of a play it once, enjoy it, and then move on type of experience. Um, she felt like you would just kind of figure out the right way to read these things in the right kind of pattern and that every game might start to feel somewhat samey. Um, I can totally see what she's coming from there. And I'll actually say that uh, her opinion is uh, shared by several of the other people that I played with in that five player game. Um, in the five player game, I once again quite enjoyed it. Another friend uh, enjoyed it quite a bit. He wants to play it more. The other, the other three people that I played it with were pretty down on it. Uh, two of them were quite down on it. Another person was um, pretty middle of the road. And um, many of them also felt like they are not interested in playing this game again because they feel like they kind of saw what was going on. And not that they were experts at the system by, by any means, but they felt like they didn't really uh, feel a need to delve in and try to figure out even more. They just kind of saw the system and they thought that it just didn't really add much for them um, compared to other games like, you know, Cottage Garden and Patchwork and um, uh, Spring Meadow and, you know, all the other polyomino style games that Uwe Rosenberg has designed. Now, for me, from my personal perspective, I actually think this game brings a, a really neat new idea to these polyomino games. It has a game within a game system, which um, you could kind of say that Spring Meadow and to a lesser extent, uh, Indian Summer had, where you're not only playing polyominoes, but there's another layer. In those other games, there were holes in the polyominoes that you were trying to line up. So you had polyomino patch pattern matching along with polyomino placing. In this one, you're placing the polyominoes and dealing with this breeding stock of different animals and trying to make sure they have the right number of animals to breed at the right time based off of where the uh, communal uh, elephant counter is in the middle of the table. And I really enjoyed that. I thought it was a pretty cool uh, uh, metagame or I guess um, uh, additional game layered on top of the polyomino placement. And I'm looking forward to playing this one more. Unfortunately, most of the people that I play games with are uh, either kind of a shrug on the game or actively disliked it. So I'll have to uh, find some other players to play with, I suppose. Uh, my one friend, Dave, who quite liked it, he, he seems like he's pretty interested in trying it more. So I do see uh, more opportunities to play this one in the future. Um, and I hope to. I, I think that the components are great. I, I really am a sucker for polyomino games in general. So that might be another thing to keep in mind. But I just thought it was a neat um, take to, to have this puzzle matching along with the, uh, the breeding and the management of the different animals. And hopefully I'll get to play this one more in the future. All right, let's now move on to game number four, and this one is Smartphone Inc. Now, this is not a new game. I believe it was originally published in 2018 or so, and I actually almost played it that year at the uh, Board Game Geek Con convention. I remember I checked it out of the library. I read the rules. I thought it looked neat, but then there's just so many other games uh, that we were all playing at the convention that we never got around to it. Uh, now, fortunately, I was able to play this one last weekend. Uh, uh, we played this one online. It was Jessica and myself, uh, along with our good friends, Efka and Elaine. Um, now, this is a pretty interesting overall game mechanically, but the theme well, I guess the theme isn't bad. It's it's called Smartphone Inc. So the idea, I guess, is that you are making companies that are making uh, smartphones, cell phones, but it really felt more just like you're making technology in a world setting, competing back and forth with each other. Now, mechanically, the way this game works is you're going to go through five rounds, and in each round, there are, I think, seven or eight steps. And I'm not going to go through all those details, but realistically, what you are doing is, um, the, the, the core of this game is this crazy puzzle with these two cards that have different icons on them. Now, the cards are double-sided, and everybody is going to, in secret, place these on top of each other, 
you have to cover at least one little uh, square on one of the cards at least, and you are flipping these over because once everybody's done and you reveal them to everybody else, the icons showing up on your cards are going to dictate um, the actions that you're going to do in all of the subsequent uh, phases of that specific round. So you have to decide how much of each type of thing do you want to actually do and then try to puzzle it out with these cards. But then on top of that, you have these improvements, which are double-sized tiles, and you can place those on top of your cards as well which negate, uh, erase other icons and put new icons in play. Now, you might be wondering, why would you ever cover more than just one thing because you want to show as many icons as possible? And that's because for everything that you overlap one card on the other, that is going to be an extra goods cube that you can sell later on in the round. Now, realistically, after you've done this pattern matching, what you're trying to do for the rest of the round is spend the action tokens that you've uh, shown to get various technologies, which will give you uh, potentially victory points and also unlock markets uh, and some special abilities. But then you are also going to have different icons, which lets you uh, move into different territories in the world. And then lastly, you are going to be selling your goods cubes to the territories in the world where you have an office. So what that means is you want to cover up icons to get more goods cubes to place those out on the board because those turn into money and money is victory points in this game. You actually never spend your money. But of course, everything that you're coming up is an icon that you're not placing out there. Now, the key to this game, in addition to obviously that puzzle, but part of that puzzle is price setting. Now, there is a price track on the left side of the board, and it goes from, I believe, $2 to $8. And that is the amount of money slash points that you're going to get for every cube that you sell in that round. Now, the, the <laughs> thing to keep in mind here is that the, that's also a player order track. So you're going to dictate your price based off of the icons showing in front of you. Some of the icons say lower the price by one. Some of the icons say increase the price by one. And once you all reveal, you check to see everybody's price, you change it on the track, and then for the rest of the round, you start with the low price people and you take all of your actions. That means the person who priced low gets first dibs at technologies. The person who priced lowest gets first dibs at moving into new territories. And the person who priced lowest gets first dibs at actually putting their goods cubes down onto the board to get points for them. Uh, now, you can only put these cubes down into areas with your office, like I mentioned before, but there are also thresholds on the board. I guess they're, they're kind of like thresholds. There's numbers on the board, and that's the amount of money that that spot is willing to pay for a good. So that means if you have set your price at three, you can put a cube down onto a four because those people are willing to pay up to $4 per cube, and you're charging $3, so that's fine. But that means you cannot put your cube down onto a three spot because you set your price at four and the three spot is only willing to pay up to $3. Now, when you're putting these cubes out, you are actually denying spots from your opponents. So it's really important to figure out how cheap you want to go because that gives you first dibs at all these things, including, and most importantly, putting these cubes out onto the board. But if you set your price at $3 each and you put six cubes out, then that's three times six or 18 money that you make. But if you set the price at $4 each and you put six cubes out, well, then you just made $24 instead of 18. So it's really important to judge how expensive you want to make your cubes versus how far back you want to be in the player order. Um, now, I'm going to not go into many more of the details of the game. I'd like to talk about how it played out for us. I believe it plays up to five players, and we played four players. We played it online. It took, I think, a little bit over two hours, and we all really enjoyed it. Uh, now, there were some pretty cool moments that happened in this game. Uh, in the first couple of rounds, I decided to be the expensive person. I set my price at, like, 
six, I think six or seven dollars. Uh, I think I just mostly uh, hung out at six dollars each for the cubes, while my opponents seemed to dive down, like they were like two dollars and three dollars and four dollars. Uh, so that meant they had first dibs on a lot of the things. And <clears throat> fortunately for me, I was able to get a technology that let me save goods cubes from one round to the next because uh, there was at least one round where I was not able to place all of my cubes down. And normally you lose all the cubes that you cannot place. Now, a really interesting thing happened in this play in the fourth round out of five, where uh, Jessica was really crunching through all of her options and then we revealed and all the rest of us uh, literally gasped when we saw Jessica's puzzle. I say puzzle with the, the cards in front of them. The reason for that is because Jessica had set her price up to eight up to this point, everybody was kind of jostling down relatively low. She went to the maximum price and she went um, really crazy on, I believe it was the, um, the, the technology icons. And that was essentially all she did. Um, she wasn't doing, she showed no uh, truck icons to expand out into new spots and she covered up a lot of spaces. So she had a lot of goods cubes to play. She had a lot of technology and she had a huge price. Now that meant she went really she went last, obviously, setting her price so high, but then the technology that she grabbed let her actually place a single cube into regions that she doesn't already have an office. And she had this monster turn where um, I thought I did good. I think I got like 55 money. Um, uh, Efka and Elaine both got like, you know, 40-ish points each, but then Jessica got like $78 because she put out so many of these cubes at eight money each. Um, don't check my math, but it was like in the 70s. It was a really huge amount of points. And it was a cool moment in the game because up to that point, we were all jostling, you know, who's going to go cheaper to get better uh, priority. And Jessica said, you know what? I'm just going to go crazy. I'm going to set this up to the maximum and get a whopping eight money per cube. And then she was able to put all of her cubes out, which was really awesome to see. Um, the game ended up uh, going to Efka. It was really close there at the end. Uh, that final round was a crazy standoff. And that's a really interesting part about this game. The fact that you are making these decisions with your card in secret means you could, on the one hand, think about it forever. But on the other hand, you shouldn't do that because there is no optimum thing to figure out. Like, what you do is based off of what your opponents are going to do. Now, going into that fifth round, I knew that Jessica could not be the only one with the 4G technology. That's the one that let her put cubes down where she didn't have offices. Um, if she was the only one to do that again, and she set her price to eight, then she would just run away with the game. So I figured I would have to also get into that spot, price underneath her, and then try to fill in some of those spots so that she would not be able to do that again. Our scores were very close at this point. And uh, it really felt like the price that I set in that last round was going to dictate if I won or lost. And I remember sitting there thinking, do I go $4 or do I go $5? Do I go $4 or do I go $5? And I ended up, or oh no, five or six. Do I go five or $6? Either way, uh, I ended up going with the slightly higher one and I came uh, actually tied with Jessica. We both came in second slash third and Efka was uh, a few points ahead of us uh, because of some other things that happened that I'm not going to go into the details of, but it was a really interesting situation. And both Jessica and I were burning our brains trying to figure out what the other person was going to do. So there's a lot of mind games here. Um, obviously, um, actually not obviously, in retrospect, Part of me wonders if maybe I should not actually have invested in that technology because Jessica was so worried that somebody was going to invest in that technology and take up the spots that she priced herself down to, I think, $6 instead of going up to 8 And that means the threat of me getting that technology was enough to have her not go crazy on it. Maybe I should have done something else. I did end up doing that. And like I said, we tied, so it was very, very close there at the end. Tied for a second, but still, uh, we tied for a very good score. But, you know, part of me wonders... 
if I should have just done something completely different, knowing that she thought that I should do that thing and if I'm not going to do that thing. Uh, I'm not used to this kind of uh, mental uh, uh, behaviors for Euro games, but there's a lot of trying to get inside your opponent's heads in this game. And the price that you set is super important. Um, at one point, somebody mentioned that um, it had a bit of a, a, a food chain magnate vibe because of the price setting of your goods and how important that is. And I have to admit, maybe I'm t saying this way too late. I probably talked about the details too much, but uh, I have to admit that I really enjoyed this game. I guess I mentioned that briefly before, but I loved the puzzle of putting these cards out. I haven't mentioned that you can get more of these improvements as you're playing throughout the game. So you could put more of these little uh, double tiles down, which give you so many more options. There's just so many things to think about with this cool little puzzle and you're all doing it simultaneously. And then you reveal and you kind of just work your way through the rest of the round. So I've been impressed with this game. I, I know there's different technologies that you can get by flipping over the ones on the board. So um, each time you play, it will be a little bit different. And I know there's an expansion which we did not even try, but uh, yeah, I've been super impressed by Smartphone Inc. I am looking forward to playing this one more. I don't own a copy of it. I'm not sure if I'm going to seek out a copy. I, I might. I'm kind of in the middle ground on that one at the moment, but uh, I certainly want to play this one more. Unfortunately, I guess I can play it online at the moment. So uh, yeah, that's Smartphone Inc. It's a really good first impression from all of us. All right, we've reached the fifth game I'm talking about today, and that is The Rise of Queensdale. Now, this is also not a new game. This one came out, I believe, a couple of years ago, and it is a legacy-style dice-rolling and changing Euro-style game that was designed by Inca and Marcus Brand. Um, now, we started a four-player campaign of this one a couple of months ago, and we went uh, for a while playing one or two uh, games in a row um, on Thursday evenings. Now, this... Uh, campaign has an indeterminate number of uh, games that you play. And I'm going to start this off by not spoiling anything, and then I might talk about some spoilers, or I probably will. Uh, but you are going to play an unknown number of games. Um, we actually ended up playing eight games in our campaign, but we did not finish the campaign. I'm going to start that uh, right off and say that um, after eight plays of this one, we decided to stop. Uh, we did the math and we figured it would probably be another nine or so plays. So it would bring us at close to 20 plays total. And we collectively decided we'd rather play other things than play out the rest of the campaign. So we just went through and spoiled everything in about an hour and saw everything that was going to happen for the rest of the game. Now, not going to talk about spoilers again. Let's pull back and talk about the base mechanics of the game, and then we'll discuss why we made the decisions that we did. Now, uh, mechanically, this is a, effectively a light uh, dice-rolling Euro-ish style game. Uh, each player has a number of dice in front of them, and in every round, you roll these dice, and then in turn order, you just take an action. And most of the actions involve placing a die that you rolled onto a spot on the board or onto an action board to do whatever that die says. Um, if the die was rolled with a wood symbol, then you could put it onto the wood spot on the board as long as there's a spot available, and then you take a wood from the supply. Uh, the first person to go to one of the wood spots, uh, on one of the wood, brick, and stone spots, if you put a die there, you get a bonus. So there's a bit of a race to be the first person to take wood in a round or the first person to take stone in a round because getting that bonus is nice. Uh, now, you also might get action symbols that show up in your dice, and you can use these to go onto an action board with a wide variety of different things that you can do on it. Um, you could just get some bread as a resource. You could also spend bread to gain morale, which is a track along the side of that board. And uh, when you go up on the morale track, sometimes you'll get bonuses like uh, activating production. Um, some of your buildings that you build out in the middle of the table produce stuff. So Certain morale levels give you production, other morale levels give you trumpets, which effectively give you points. 
Now, um, as I said, there is a big board in the middle of the table, and I'm not sure how this game works in real life entirely because we played this entirely on Tabletop Simulator. Uh, we were actually about to start a campaign of this one uh, before the pandemic hit, and then we ended up playing it this way. Uh, one of my friends does own a copy of it. Um, now, in this game, you actually spend your resources to construct buildings, which will give you points, and those buildings are permanent. That means when you go to play the game uh, again in the future, that building that you built in the previous game is there and you can still use it. So there is some serious ongoing uh, engine building that you can do because some of the buildings let you produce resources when you get to that production spot on the morale track. But then there are lots of other options like buildings that let you store resources uh, from one game to the next. Normally you can't save anything, but if you have certain buildings, now you can save uh, some stone or you can save some wood. So that gives you a leg up in the next game. Now, um, the way this game ends is, is kind of interesting. So there's a score track and it goes, I believe, all the way up to 90. But in the very first time you play the game, everybody puts their epoch marker on the, I believe it was 10 victory point spot. Now the game will end as soon as any one player has reached the number of victory points where their epoch token is. So that means the first game is just essentially a race to 10 victory points. Now let's say I got to 10 victory points and somebody else did, but the other two people didn't. Well, when we go to play the game the next time, then the two people who reached their epoch Epoch marker in the last game, move their marker forward one chunk. So now I will end the game if I get to like 18 or 20 points, but the person who did not end the game last time will end it if they get to 10 points. So that means the end game thresholds are different. I need 20 points to finish the game where somebody else needs 10 points. If I somehow get to 20 points before that other person does, then in the next game, I'll need like 30 points to finish the game, whereas that person still only needs 10 points because they've still never gotten to that marker. Um, now, this means multiple people can win the game at the same time, but there's this uh, balancing mechanism where everyone who does not win the game and get to their epoch marker gets a little seal token, and um, other people who get close to uh, winning get a bonus seal, which I won't talk about the details of. And at the start of each game, you can spend these seals to apply stickers onto your dice, which permanently change the die faces. Um, so that means this is a dice rolling game, but as you get farther and farther into the campaign, you customize your dice, you upgrade your dice, and um, depending on various situations, your dice actually might be downgraded, uh, but I won't talk about those details. And um, that means you have some ownership over the possibilities that show up on these dice. Uh, now, speaking of the dice, I do want to mention that for a free action, you can spend any resource to re-roll uh, one die. One die or all your dice? Shoot, I can't remember. It's one of those two. It's been a few weeks since I played. But either way, you can do a lot of re-rolls if you have resources that you don't necessarily need. So it is a die-rolling game, but if you don't like your results, there are um, lots of ways to um, get the things that you actually need. Um, so... That's kind of the basic structure of the game. Uh, you get points for going up the morale track at certain points. You get points for uh, building out your houses. Oh, uh, one more important mechanic. You have these herb tokens scattered around the entire board, and every player has a little uh, explorer uh, icon. And one of the actions that you can do lets you move your explorer a certain number of hexes. And based off of the type of herb huts that you've invested in, you can uh, essentially pick those herbs, flip them over, and you get a random uh, thing that's on the back. It could be a victory point could be bread, it could be a resource or something like that. Um, but one of the things that you can do in the game is build herb huts so that you can match up with more of the different herb types so that you can move your little person around and pick up more of these things. Um, now, what all this means is you can do a lot of different things when you're playing the game in each individual game. And as the campaign progressed, 
you will certainly find yourself, at least what we found, uh, with certain people started to specialize. Um, certain people were able to get um, buildings that let them uh, move their uh, explorer around more, and so they kind of focused on getting lots of herbs. Uh, other people uh, went crazy on production, just built a bunch of different production buildings, and then found ways to get more morale in certain ways so that they can activate their production a lot. And um, as I said, we ended up playing eight overall games of this. And as you go, uh, each time a new uh, level is achieved, each time the first person reaches a new epoch spot, you actually progress with a story which is read out with cards. And every time you read out these new cards, there's new mechanics. And again, I'm not going to spoil the details of these probably at all, honestly. It's uh, a minutia that's probably not very important, but you get an ongoing story as you're building out this uh, valley and you also, you know, get new things added and maybe some things go away. Um, some things you actually will affect based off of your decisions, based off of other cards that you see. So there's a lot of ownership of the players, but um, a lot of the things are a bit of a, uh, a blind box or I guess a black box. Uh, one thing that I love about the dice upgrades is the fact that there are a bunch of special symbols on them and you have to spend the seals to place that sticker down onto your die before you know what it does. So that means there is a lot of kind of mystery and uh, whimsical moments to this game where you're like, I want to upgrade into that mirror. It's like a hand mirror. You put it on your die and you have some ideas about maybe what's going on there, but you don't actually know. And then you read the rules and you're like, oh, that's the thing I just got. So it's almost like unwrapping a uh, Christmas present. Uh, I unlocked the dog face. I'm not going to tell you what the dog does, but you can come up with your own ideas. And I remember being happy with the dog face. And I was happy every time the dog got rolled. But that was uh, definitely a fun thing overall. And there were many moments throughout this game, uh, whether from putting stickers down or from drawing cards, where everybody collectively laughed at the silly whimsy of this game. It is a Euro-ish game of resource management with luck from dice rolling that you can um, mitigate, but it also has just some wacky things that um, I'll talk about maybe a little bit more uh, later on because I want to talk about why we ended the campaign before I start spoiling things. So let's talk about why we ended the campaign. Now, we all enjoyed the game. We enjoyed every single play of it. Uh, we had an ongoing uh, uh, scheduled thing, like every Thursday night we'd sit down to play. Um, we'd usually play one or two games of it because each game took about an hour. So um, you could pretty easily fit two of those in um, depending on the different situation. And we played eight games of it total over the course of, um, you know, seven weeks or something like that. Now, the thing is, when we sat down to play our ninth play of it, we somebody asked, do we want to keep going with the campaign? It's just like an honest question. And the answer that we all realized that we had was yes and no. We all enjoyed each time that we played. Uh, we were not, un it's not like it was a bad experience overall, but we found ourselves with this sea of other games that we want to try, just other board games that exist. And we found ourselves wanting to try those more than we wanted to see where the game was going. Uh, we also had some suspicions about maybe some things that might be a little bit imbalanced in where the overall campaign might be going. And we collectively, um, we did a little bit of math. Uh, we figured out how many games we played and how far we were in the overall campaign because you keep playing until one person has their epoch marker on the 90 point mark and they get to 90 victory points. And we realized that it was gonna be a minimum of like six or seven more games and potentially up to like nine, 10 or 11 more games. And that's a lot of time where we could be playing other things. And we we figured we could either pause and revisit it next year, but we probably would never actually revisit it. Or we could just say, you know what? We've had our fun. We played this eight times. Let's now just work our way through and pretend like we played through the rest of the things, flip over all the cards, open up all the boxes and just see what would have happened. And we ultimately decided to do that. We essentially weren't enjoying the game enough 
to commit to the rest of the campaign. Um, now, I think that um, there's definitely a world where I could have gone through the whole campaign if maybe there weren't so many other exciting other games out there that I certainly would have enjoyed seeing where everything went uh, and uh, spoiling everything for the rest of us, not actually playing through it, but just seeing what happened. Uh, it looked like some relatively interesting things happened, uh, nothing that particularly blew me away overall, but I think that uh, playing through the whole campaign is fine. And I think lots of people will do it, and I'm definitely not advising that you don't. Uh, in fact, I, I I think I recommend this game if you like the idea of you know, a Euro game with some wacky things that happen and a lot of dice rolls. Uh, realistically, the, the only issue that I had with this game is that seals are too hard to come by. Again, those seals are uh, currency that you spend to put stickers down onto your dice. And after eight games of this one, I think I had applied like five stickers total. And if memory serves, I think we all have five D6 dice, which means that's like 30 die faces. And I had a uh, changed, I think, about five of them over eight games. We were like almost halfway through the overall campaign. And that's just not what I was hoping for. I would have hoped that by the time we got halfway through the campaign, I would have put stickers on half of my die faces. But it seemed like even there going into the ninth game, if I roll the dice, almost everything that I'm going to roll is going to be the same types of results that I would have had in the very first play. And that was disappointing. That was probably the biggest disappointment of the entire uh, Rise of Queensdale uh, uh, package. Uh, you know, the mechanics that just... I wish you just got more seals. And there was this really strange thing where I said you get a seal if you don't reach your endgame victory point spot. And if you reach that, then you don't get a seal. You do move your epoch forward and there are other benefits that I'm not going to go into. But there were several times where players were sitting there saying, I could win. I could get to that spot. But maybe I will intentionally not win because I will get two seals because I'm close to winning. And then I can use those two seals to modify my dice so that my dice are stronger for the long term. So that meant there was a strange incentive to slow down the campaign almost <laughs> and uh, in order to be stronger in a longer campaign, which was kind of self-perpetuating. Um, so I just, I'm not really sure why that existed. I, I wish just more seals were being given to people or maybe the price to actually put stickers out onto your dice was lower, something like that. that that's realistically the main issue that I have. So let's talk about some spoilers. <laughs> I'm going to talk about what some of the die faces do, some of the funny moments and whatnot, because I don't know, I imagine some people are curious about it. And we can start with the dog. So I decided to get the dog die face because it was a cute little doggy face. And then I read the rules for it. And it said that every time I rolled that dog face, I could then move my explorer. Uh, I believe it was two spaces and pick up every single herb that I found. It does not matter what herb hut technologies essentially I had already. So it was a really flexible way to get some more things that I, I quite liked. Um, now, I mentioned there was a hand mirror, and that one was really wacky. So whenever the hand mirror got rolled face up by the player who took it, uh, they would go to a sticker sheet with a whole bunch of appearance modifiers like glasses or beard or a funny hat or maybe like jewelry, you know, necklace and that kind of thing. And they would make an auction for one of these things. So everybody else would uh, essentially say how many resources they want to spend to the player with the, the hand mirror to then get that appearance sticker that you then stick down onto your player face that you have in front of you. And in that moment, the game tells you no reason why you might want to do that. Now, we all kind of assumed that there's probably a good reason to do this. So we would we went for it. And uh, the person with the hand mirror face gets an automatic appearance adjuster as well. And apparently, when we spoiled through the rest of the campaign, late, late in the campaign, the queen has not really a fashion contest, but um, 
a certain card will be revealed where you check to see who is the fanciest person with the most stickers and you get various benefits. So there is a mechanical reason to do this, but we also had a lot of fun just putting these stickers in very weird ways on our different characters. Like, <laughs> we definitely laughed about that. Uh, there's another die face. I can't remember what the icon looked like, uh, but it was uh, purchased really early in the campaign. And whenever it was rolled, that player effectively put on a performance for the rest of us. And what that means is every other player could then clap. And like, literally, they, were, they had to clap for the person for their performance and then uh, pay that person a coin in order to get a morale boost, which is a really good price for gaining morale. So what that meant is almost every time that icon was rolled, everybody starts clapping. We're playing, you know, over uh, uh, Discord, so we're like clapping into our microphones so that everybody can hear. And then we we throw coins at Dave, who's the one that had that. And um, then we all get these cheap morale bumps. And then Dave is just drowning in coins because he keeps putting on these performances. So then um, Dave built a building that let him uh, spend coins at a cheaper rate to get various stuff. So that was like almost a little uh, um, side thing that he was going for. Now, what each of the players specialized on as we got deeper into the games was kind of interesting, but it, it also lent itself towards some worries about imbalance. Um, Dave, for instance, never built a single production building. He got a bunch of storage buildings, and he also got many buildings that let him uh, specialize on moving his explorer around the map. So he um, was able to um, gather these herbs really well, and he obviously got a bunch of coins for that one die face, and he was able to get the resources they needed by spending the coins at an efficient rate. Whereas uh, our friend Nick went crazy on the production building. And I am pretty confident that Nick was going to run away with the campaign. I'm not sure if that's true. I'm not entirely sure. But Nick built up a situation where he's he was able to get morale quickly, which let him run his production buildings. And every time he ran his production buildings, he got like eight or nine resources. Me, I had a couple of production buildings. Every time I ran production, I got like three or maybe four. But it seemed like Nick would run production and instantly have enough stuff to build a new building or to do the next thing. And it just, it seemed like how are we going to compete with that? How do we catch up with this person who has built a crazy engine that is perpetual from one game to the next? That person always has that crazy big engine. Now, it's not like Nick won every single game, but he was constantly pushing the threshold. I think he was the one who pushed the threshold for essentially every time that it actually got pushed. And um, again, I can't be sure, but it almost seemed like a foregone conclusion that Nick was going to win the campaign, which was a little bit of a bummer. That's not actually the reason we stopped. Like I said, we stopped because it was fun, but not fun enough. We were all curious to see where it went, and I, I'm curious to know if Nick would have run, with, uh, run away with the campaign, but you know, now we'll never actually know. Uh, so there's all these different competing factors, it's a really fascinating experience. And my big takeaway is that the Rise of Queensdale feels like a 20 to 25 hour Euro game that's been split into a bunch of little phases. Like it doesn't even feel like a, a, a legacy game in so much it feels like a specific long, long game with various save points along the way. Like each game is like a round of an overall much larger game because of the way you build out everything. And that's interesting. That's definitely a, a compelling uh, gameplay perspective. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, we, we played through half of it. So I think I'm, I think I'm done talking about Rise of Queensdale. There's there's uh, probably a lot more to say, but I think I've hit on all the main parts. Um, if you're still listening to this part, then I imagine you're not going to be actually going out to get a copy. So I hope you've enjoyed all of these different spoilers. And, and I do want to say that, um, you know, we played eight games. So that was a solid eight hours of fun. And every single person enjoyed those eight hours. So there's a lot of good stuff in this box. It's just unfortunate that it did not collectively make sense for us to see it all the way to the end.
Well, speaking of the end, at this point, the Impressions vlog is now coming to a close. Uh, I'm actually about to film another one covering uh, several more games that I've been able to play recently, and I'll be putting that one out um, in a week or two. I'm trying to spread these out a little bit, uh, but there's a lot of good games coming out right now, and I'm actively trying to play lots of new stuff, so it's possible there's going to be uh, many more of these Impressions vlogs uh, being sprinkled out every uh, couple of weeks. So yeah, that's going to bring this podcast to a close. Thanks for listening.